0: This is The Interchange Recharged. I'm David Bammiller. Demand for lithium, nickel, and cobalt, using EVs, chargers, solar PV, wind and batteries, is likely to rocket to 35 times the current demand by 2035. So-called precious mineral demand could rise by 15%, cobalt by 14%, and nickel 13% above the projections made before the IRA in August 22. How is the industry going to meet demand? Innovative new ways of mining. Before we get into the discussion today, I want you to join me on a quick journey. We're going deep, down to the seabed of the Pacific Ocean, 1,400 miles southwest of San Diego. Join me in the sub, and let's explore a new frontier in mining. It's October 2022. We're on the seafloor and in front of us is a remote-controlled 90-ton machine lowered from an industrial ship on a cable nearly three miles long. I'm looking at the latest venture from the metals company, a startup founded in 2011 focused on deep sea mining for the metals we need for the energy transition. It's a mammoth machine with water jets on the front blasting away at the seafloor. The rocks it dislodges are sucked into an intake at the front, then into a centrifuge to spin away the water and finally sent up to the mothership on the surface for processing. The ship, the hidden gem, was a former oil drilling vessel nearly 800 feet long. These huge black boulders I've just watched squirreled away from the seafloor up to the surface. Our guest today refers to as batteries in a rock. He's Gerard Barron, CEO of The Metals Company.
1: We know that 70% of our planet is covered in ocean It's strange that we've not gone to the ocean looking for where we can find a supply of metals until now. What we need to be thinking about is where can we get a supply of these important battery metals with the lightest planetary and human touch?
0: So back to August 2023, and I'm back in the studio and focused on the question that the world is trying to answer. How do we accelerate the energy transition in the most effective manner without draining the world of natural resources? Making enough EVs to replace the ice counterparts will require billions of tons of cobalt, lithium, copper and other metals. Companies, carmakers and governments are expanding mines all over the world. The seafloor, however, remains untapped. Is it simply too difficult to mine there? And do we even need to when the world's existing mines could give us enough? To examine this and much more, I'm joined by Gerard and also Robbie Diamond. Robbie is president and CEO of SAFE, who advocate for policies to improve American energy security by curtailing dependence on oil and promoting responsible use of domestic energy.
1: Jared, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. Pleasure to be with you today.
0: Robbie, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Jared, tell us a little bit about the Metals Company.
1: The metals company have focused on developing ocean metal resources, and we have two areas in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Mexico that we have uh, 43101 resource statements over that contain around 1.6 billion tons of polymetallic nodules. And it just so happens that these nodules contain all the battery metals that it's become evident to people we're going to need a lot more of as we transition away from fossil fuels. So for the last 12 years, we've been busy understanding the baseline environment around that resort, identifying the results. So we're 43101 compliant. And last year, we were at sea testing our collector system for six months, which was a, a huge success. And it's an exciting time for this industry because I'm talking to you today from Kingston, Jamaica, where the final part of the missing piece of the jigsaw is... Being resolved, and that is the final mining code under which we will operate.
0: Robbie, tell us a little bit about Safe and your organization. Yes, yeah,
2: Safe is an organization that started in 2004, and its uh, you know original mission was defined as ending oil dependence for economic and national security reasons. Um, really, uh, at that time, 2004, we're in two wars a uh, global war on terror, every major recession has been preceded by an oil price spike, and usually the response in the political system of the United States has been like we used to have a fight in the old uh, light beer debate, taste great, less filling, drill more, use less. And we got together a group of four-star admirals and generals and CEOs of major companies, create a group called the Energy Security Leadership Council, chaired by Fred Smith, the founder of uh, FedEx, and General P.X. Kelly, the 28th Commandant onto the Marine, to try to break that logjam and argue to produce what we could domestically, use it as efficiently as possible, and finally diversify transportation fuels, which led us to electric vehicles. And electric vehicles, because we use diverse fuel sources, they're domestic, and finally, they're very stable in price. And over the 19 years, and being among the first proponents of electric vehicles, you know, got really concerned about China's dominance in the mineral space. As I like to say, you know, we did not want to be an organization that really wanted to live by our values and have an economic and national security focus and go from the Saudi frying pan into the Beijing battery fire. And so based on that and this geopolitical focus, we created a critical mineral strategy center, a strategic industrial material center, a semiconductor center. How do you make sure that if something is in an F-150 Lightning and in an F-35 that we have a secure supply chain. And so really safe is about living by our values and making sure that um, the allied supply chain is secure while also solving our energy security
0: issues. So, Robbie, we've had a number of discussions on the show about the supply chain issues facing the energy transition. And as we push more towards EVs and global decarbonization, supply chain issues are becoming more prevalent. What are your thoughts about the constraints and maybe some of the actions being taken to help alleviate them?
2: The challenge is tremendous in front of us. When one thinks about going from a fossil world to a minerals-based world, the amount of minerals we're going to need are tremendous. And this isn't just for batteries, but also for all the other things like uh, solar panels, wind turbines, and everything with an on and off switch as we electrify more and more. Now, the problem is not just one of amount, right? Just the whole world needs more, and that is a concern. Are we producing enough mines as quickly? Which is why TMC is such an exciting proposition. But then also that China has this dominance on it. Um, not just the dominance on the mines, of course, those come from many parts of the world, yet they are vertically integrating, buying those, being able to manipulate behind uh, the opaque supply chain that they are, but also they own really most of the processing capacity. So even in when we would mine something in a Western country, most likely we're sending it to China and it's coming out. China's dominance makes OPEC look like it didn't even exist, like OPEC has a cartel of many they are a cartel of one i like to say that they are opec squared and it's really concerning you know they're processing about 80% of most minerals the united states does not process between 0 to 4% of the major minerals materials needed for batteries so when one looks at this picture it is both concerning for the amount of materials we need for this transition but then also concerning about the dominance and the geopolitics and i think covid then the uh, semiconductor issue, then the Russia invasion, and the increasing tension between China, the United States, and their economic practices just put a fine point on why this is so critical. Countries go to war for two things. They go to war because of resources and energy. And this is our concern. Actually, strong supply chains will be a more
0: peaceful world. So if I just look at nickel alone, which obviously is a component for battery storage, and recent estimates are to meet our 2040 decarbonization goals, something like 80 billion tons needs to be mined. And that's compared to about 100 million of global unmined capacity. So clearly that's making it tight. Jared, how can deep sea mining impact that supply chain constraint?
1: Well, playing on what Robbie was talking about on the geopolitics, I guess one of the big issues that we can solve with ocean metals is that being in the middle of the pacific ocean not being tied to a pacific country but being in the area that's deemed the international waters allows us to go and collect our rocks which of course are very rich in nickel uh, if you put our nickel copper cobalt manganese into nickel we're about 3.2 percent nickel equivalent so very high grade and one of the great things is that we can put those nodules on a boat and ship them to North America or to Japan or down to Australia or to Europe. And that opportunity is not available with land based door bodies. Typically, no one wants a mine in their backyard. We know that. That's why getting mines permitted in the USA has been such a challenge. But the other issue is infrastructure capital hurdles. You know, some of these jurisdictions where some of the undeveloped mines do exist, tend to have tremendous sovereign risk, so they don't have great regulatory certainty. But they also require billions of dollars of gating capital, whether that's to build roads or deep water ports or rail or power supplies or villages for people to live. And so, you know, that adds time. It adds permissing complexity and risk. Whereas with ocean metals... As we demonstrated last year, we can convert a vessel, move it on out there and be in production in a matter of days. And so we're not hemmed in by that capital constraint that land-based oil bodies are restricted by. And so we announced last year that, in fact earlier this year, that we were collaborating with a group in Japan, who of course also part of the IRA qualification list of countries, which means that we can process our nodules in existing infrastructure. And that's one of the other unique things about our nodules is that we've identified processing facilities around the world that do not require any amendment to be able to receive our nodules, perhaps a little material handling changes. So that also removes one of the big capital gating items for us. And it also removes permitting risk on the onshore side. You know, that's one of the many advantages that allows us to get this new industry started without having to go and raise billions of dollars worth of capital.
0: What are some of the challenges that deep sea mining faces, Jared? I mean, I'm assuming that there's issues with disruption of ecosystems and things like that. But what are some of the challenges that you're facing? Because on the surface, it sounds like, I mean, it's no brainer. We've got this plentiful resource, help support the energy transition and decarbonization. But where are some of the resistance points that you're seeing?
1: I think the biggest challenge is the unknown. You know, people are constantly quoted in the press saying we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about the ocean. And and that's a throwaway line because when it comes to the clarion clipperton zone and certainly the areas that we had been spending hundreds of millions of dollars on over the last decade, you know, we know every square inch of our results and we've been carrying out those baseline environmental data studies to make sure that we understand the ecosystem before we disturb it. And last year, of course, alongside our production vessel, we had another research vessel filled with about 80 people, many of them scientists from institutions and universities all around the world who were part of our environmental research team and program. Where we were monitoring the area before we disturbed it We were monitoring the area as we collected the nodules, and then we stayed behind to survey it after we'd collected. And so one of the biggest challenges, I would say, David, is getting data-driven science, because at the moment, it's wild speculation about what the potential impacts are. And so, you know, so far, all of our studies that have been completed, we've generated more than 200 terabytes of data which has been a massive contribution to our knowledge about ocean science. And we're at CCZ, with our upload that happened to the international OBIS database in June, we increased the data on the CCZ by 150%. Now, that data had been compiled by other contractors since 2004. And that's only the beginning. We will have other uploads later this year and then again next year. And that data is what, provides the evidence around impacts you know we had 50 devices in the water measuring and monitoring as we were collecting nodules so we could measure where the sediment moved so we could measure sound impacts and so on and so i would say misinformation is the biggest challenge we face
2: I was just going to second what uh, Gerard said. So first of all, it's unbelievable to say that we don't know anything down there. We we know a tremendous amount. We've uh, you know been studying this since the 1970s, and it's that economic interest that has allowed such a research to be undertaken. But when one looks at the biodiversity in the rest of the world, particularly where we get nickel in the uh, rainforest, which is really the most biodiverse part of the world, whether you measure it by the amount of species which are in the four million plus versus the Clarion-Clipperton zone, which might be 5,000 and most are microbes and and little things, or just from the amount of per, like, mass uh, down there versus somewhere else. Then you begin to think about the roads for mines and the uh, indigenous rights and destruction that goes on uh, terrestrially versus, you know, in the underwater. And then, you know, one thing I think people do not really appreciate is that the nodules are pure in metal. And therefore, there's no tailings. And more and more, we're getting lower-grade deposits terrestrially, which means that we have more and more tailings when you process it afterwards. And here you know, are these nodules. And so, like everything else, nothing is perfect. You touch something, you're going to impact it. And we're going to need terrestrial mining. This is not to say we should not do terrestrial mining. But to have uh, ourselves look at this and say that we don't need this, Especially in the environmental community, when from a planetary perspective, you know, the argument is, you know, our species is going to go extinct due to climate change. It just defies logic from the environmental perspective. And then from an economic and national security perspective, you know, when we can talk about this, you know, I see this as a shale. Really, this is a pivot on the market that will totally change the geopolitics of these supply chains and metals. I'm happy to talk about that. And I think we're at this sort of uh, moment where shale did change the world in the United States. And here are these undersea nodules, whether in the Clarion-Clipperton zone or in other places like the Cook Islands, can also have this dramatic impact.
0: And Robbie, what role is the International Seabed Authority playing in this? You
2: know, the International Seabed Authority is an affiliate of the United Nations created through the law of the sea in order to you know, regulate this for the good of all humankind. And that is what they're doing today. And I guess we will talk about this, but have paused, not paused, they've said that they're going forward There's just need a little more time to create this regulatory structure. So there's the International Seabed Authority that is sort of the regulatory body for international waters, But then there are countries that have in their own economic exclusive uh, zones, which is, you know, within the 200 miles of their coastline, where they're going to be doing this themselves. Now, some of them will follow ISA regulations, some will just move forward. And so in some ways, the ISA, I think, is playing catch-up. Countries like Norway have said that they plan to get minerals in their deep sea. Countries like the Cook Islands, that is their own sovereign right to do that. So there's two things going on, but the point is there are a lot of metals underneath the uh, ocean, and they provide you know, really, I think, what we need. And the last thing I would just say, which frustrates you know me in particular, is people do not appreciate the size of the Pacific Ocean. I mean, we are talking about a minuscule part of the Pacific Ocean, and a part that is very flat. Um, a part that, once again, if one was just watching what happened with the Titanic, there's no um, real uh, let's call them uh, creatures that live beyond that. There's no fauna even down there because it's so deep. The Titanic was about thirteen thousand uh, feet. Uh, This is uh, past 16,000 feet. So I just think like we're taking an unknown, which is actually more known, and using it to hurt us from a planetary perspective, which is just very frustrating, I think, for people who see the risks, both environmentally, but also uh, strategically, of the supply chains of this transition.
1: And just adding to what Robbie was saying on the environmental side, we know that 70% of our planet is covered in ocean. And... It's strange that we've not gone to the ocean looking for where we can find a supply of metals until now, because, you know, what we need to be thinking about, I believe, is where can we get a supply of these important battery metals with the lightest planetary and human touch? Because it is true There are nickel reserves in Indonesia. They're concerned about them running out, by the way. They estimate by early 2040s, they will have depleted all these resources. But in so doing, they will have also destroyed some of the most important biodiverse carbon sinks on our planet. These rainforests are also littered with indigenous communities who don't want to drive an electric car. (laughs) They want to live peacefully, yet they're being pushed out by the encroachment of mining And there's this tremendous gift that Mother Nature has created in the abyssal zone, a thousand miles away from the nearest community, in a part of the seafloor where there is zero flora and the fauna that does exist, because there is some life there in the CCZ, but it's primarily bacteria, which has a role. And of course, what we're studying is what function does it provide and how can we minimize the impact. Mitigate those impacts and what are recovery rates like? And so far, our environmental program is providing the evidence to be able to make those informed decisions. And we're pointing to a conclusion of that environmental work, which we've started to release some of the results already. And all I can say is it's very, very encouraging. You know, the impacts are far less than we imagined. If I just give you an example of sediment plume, which is probably one of the main arguments that has been used to date. As our robot crawls along the seafloor, we'll generate some dust, a little bit like you would if you drive your car down a dirt path. But the question is, how far will that dust travel? What will the impact of it be? And speculation by some NGOs mainly was that this dust will travel for thousands of miles. But instead, What the results have proven, and MIT published three important peer-reviewed papers last year because they were observing a program from the Belgian and the German contractors, is that the sediment only rises around two meters above the seafloor, and up to 98% of it settles in the same test area. Now, as I mentioned, last year we were at sea for six months collecting nodules on our license area. It was a fully integrated test. And we had 50 devices in the water listing, measuring, and our findings were exactly the same as MIT. So the sediment rises only around two meters above the seafloor and pretty well stays in the same area. And these currents on the seafloor are very different to the currents above them. And so it's another great gift that this resource offers.
0: So, Jared, what other challenges, from a technological standpoint, do you face at those depths?
1: Doing something for the first time at scale brings its own set of challenges. But one of the ways we addressed that as a company was we went looking for a partner who brought great expertise in the deep ocean. And so in 2019, Allseas became an investor, and we also awarded them a contract to build our first collector system. And so AllSea's private company for 37 years have been a a leading name in the pipeline industry for the oil and gas industry. So they've been working in the deep ocean in a 24-7 production environment for decades. And so one of the reasons why our trials last year were so successful is because AllSea's could bring to this industry everything that they've learned for the last 37 years. In an adjacent industry and so of course there are challenges but that can be solved through expertise in engineering and engineers love a problem and they've had their best minds on solving this and so what we have successfully shown is that we can collect these nodules at scale and so what we're busy doing now is converting that first production vessel the hidden gem into being production ready for when we anticipate we'll be afforded the ability to go and commercialize this asset on the onshore side we've completed our pilot processing work where we showed how we would take the nodules and turn them into battery metals and we've now engaged with other onshore partners including a japanese corporation pamco who've been processing nickel ores since the 1960s so once again an enormous amount of expertise that they can bring to help us solve the onshore processing challenges for this new material. And so that's been our approach invite people in. Of course, we've worked with Hatch, we work with Bechtel and quality names who can come and help us you know, get this industry started. I must say, the supply chain has been enthusiastic because this has the opportunity to disrupt the metals and mining industry because of the size of the resource On our area, we know we have 1.6 billion tons of these nodules on the Nori and the Toml license area. And just to put that into numbers, that would be enough to build around 280 million, 75 kilowatt batteries on an NMC chemistry. So it's a really large resource.
0: So Robbie, what can governments, maybe more specifically the US government do to help move this initiative along?
2: First of all, I think governments need to engage, and uh, they are down at the International Seabed Authority. But there's both things that they can do uh, at the International Seabed Authority, but then um, I think outside that system. So the United States itself is not a signatory of the Law of the Seas. They have only an observer role. But that doesn't mean they don't have influence, but they have an uh, observer role down there. And I think it's important that the United States does not support a uh, moratorium, and, and that, that has not uh, happened. But that being said, it's not exactly like we're leaning in as a country. And here we have everything to benefit, right? That's between Hawaii and Mexico, put them on a ship, sail them to the United States, sail them to Japan, but really sail them to the United States and have this mineral that doesn't have the contentious issues with indigenous and other land-based things of the United States, process them here and really create an alternative. But then there are places like in the Cook Islands and other places where the United States also has a big influence. I think the Chinese, you know, when they went to the Solomon Islands, suddenly the Chinese show up in the Solomon Islands. You know, the world is shocked. Um, We've forgotten about these islands and the Chinese are there. And so there's this whole string of islands, which is why Biden went uh, after the G7, although he couldn't go in the end because of some uh, domestic, you know, budgetary uh, issues with the Republicans. But he had a whole trip to go to the Pacific Islands. And because these islands are really important to us. So there are islands like the Pacific Islands or the island of Nauru that has sponsored TMC's license area. And so I think it's really important for the United States to uh, lean in. And I think we've had at the executive level sort of uh, they're neither here, they're neither there. They're really interested, but no one's taking uh, a firm position. It would be much better if they did. Now, in Congress... I think they're trying to put some pressure. So just in the last uh, National Defense Authorization Act that was passed out of the House, there's a provision for the Pentagon to respond to how to use nodules in the supply chain. And I think that that and different steps like that will help out. And the United States, if we do nothing, we'll lose. We'll lose to China because China has announced that they feel behind in this area and are going to accelerate. And in this Clarion-Clipperton zone, they hold license areas. We hold none. For the reason uh, that I said. So even if we don't hold those license areas, I think by leaning in, being positive, providing the money both for research, extraction, using our XM bank, our DFC, all of our facilities, getting those picked up, sailed to the United States and processed, it would change the landscape of this geopolitically. And that is what our country needs to do. And I hope the Biden administration really sees the value in leads, both from the national security side Asia people, their supply chain people, but also from the environmental side, if they really do look at this uh, resource as they should. And if not, Congress should continue to push them to be doing.
0: Jared, from a financial perspective, how do the costs and returns of deep sea mining compare to onshore?
1: People think it must be expensive to operate at 4,000 meters below sea level, but actually it's water. You know, I'm sure we've Seen pictures of mines or visited uh, land-based mining operations, where an operator might spend seven years or more building a shaft to reach the terrestrial deposit. So we don't have those challenges, and so of course, four thousand meter water depth brings other challenges, but they can be solved. And so the capital-light nature approach that we've taken also has a great impact on the financial returns. And so what we think is that operating in the bottom quartile, operating with much lighter environmental impacts, whether it's CO2 emissions, whether it's the amount of water we use, whether it's the alternative use that land-based oil bodies have compared to the abyssal zone that doesn't really have an alternative use, all of these indicators just help the package of getting this new industry started. And we've funded life cycle analyses, Uh, Benchmark Mineral Intelligence, just published an LCA in recent months that was focused on our Nori D project, where they looked through the lens of an LCA at all of those range of impacts, and the results were encouraging.
0: And Jared, where are you in terms of commercialization of the seabed mining, and, and what steps need to be further taken?
1: So last year, our collector trial was a major milestone for two reasons. One is we wanted to make sure it worked to the production rates that we needed to. And secondly, it was important for the permitting process because as we're preparing our application to move from exploration to exploitation now, we needed the baseline environmental studies, we needed the plume studies, we needed the noise studies, and so on. And so we're busy completing that application right now as i mentioned we already have our first production vessel we've already identified how and we haven't yet announced that we definitely will process in japan but the signs are looking like it will be so all of the elements are there and of course the last piece of that jigsaw is the mining code that the regulator is putting in place as we speak and you know it's worth noting that a lot of people ask question well if it's so good (laughs) why hasn't it been done before? And it's important to understand the answer to that, because 50 years ago, they were out there collecting these very same nodules. BP, Shell, Mitsubishi, Sinatomo were all involved. Rio Tinto had built a processing plant. But 50 years ago, the rules on who owns the oceans and where do your borders begin and end hadn't been agreed. So that was resolved when UNCLOS was signed. And As Robbie mentioned earlier, the UN established this body called the International Seabed Authority, and their job was to put in place exploration and exploitation regulations while protecting the marine environment. And so the exploration regs were done in 2001, and we were on track to do the exploitation regs in 2020, but then came COVID, and so everything stopped. And this is an intergovernmental organization made up of 168 countries plus the European Union. So it kind of moves at a glacial pace, but actually it provides more certainty as well. You know, this will be the first time that an asset that is deemed the common heritage of humankind has ever been developed. So it's important to get it right. And there's been an enormous amount of regulation before the industry even gets started. And we know in the oil and gas and mining industries, of course, they started and then they tried to regulate them, whereas it's the other way around here. And I think that's important. You know, It's important that we set a very high benchmark with our first application, that we do everything we can to understand and then protect this ecosystem. And I think this is an opportunity of getting it right.
2: I think it's ironic that Gerard says that they move at a glacial pace. So the question is, will they come up with the regulations before all our glaciers melt due to uh, climate change? And I think that's really the question uh, before us. Can they actually move? But I also want to put a finer point uh, and go back to what I'd said about shale, shale gas and shale oil. Like, why now? Why is something we've known about for so long? And really, one can think about exactly what happened with shale, right? So here they were trying to experiment with this. Um, idea of getting oil and gas out of shale rock. And what happened was horizontal drilling and fracking, which ultimately is why the United States became this uh, resurgence of our superpower status um, in energy. And similarly here, it's the amount of technology that has gone into deep sea, deep sea oil and gas, deep sea dredging, and exploration, that has really changed and made it viable economically. But at the same time as that was going on, the market was changing dramatically. The need for these metals, because of the batteries, because how we started this show, by talking how much is going to be needed. And those two things coming together has created this moment that just didn't exist 50 years ago. Forget the regulatory side. It just didn't exist. You didn't have the technology. Pull it up at the low quartile, as we just heard, and the need for these metals and the prices. And those two things together have created a change, which I think at the same time as we saw with, with Shale, once again, they, they worked for decades to try to figure out how to do this. And two technologies came together, the need and the price of energy was up, and therefore uh, that revolutionized the world. So I think this is something that will, will have that type of impact when we uh, look back, if we can uh, move forward. But even if the ISA doesn't move, which they will, I think it is a question of, uh, of when, not if. Countries are going to do this, including China in its continental waters, or try. They'll do other types of mining, which we could talk about um, at some point, not just these polymetallic, but, you know, countries are starting to look. And as we said, the ocean is like two-thirds of the planet's surface, and we do nothing. So uh, it is going to be something where we do uh, look to for the minerals. I mean, I don't know. To me, by going to an asteroid... And looking for these metals and minerals seems uh, much more difficult than going to our auto oh, ship.
0: Robbie, so we've got Nauru that's obviously partnered with the metals company. Uh, you mentioned earlier Norway. I've got to imagine that the auto manufacturers are interested in this as well. But what other countries organizations companies do you see out there that are really supportive of this and trying to help drive this more to a commercialization type event
2: so there are auto companies that have so far said that they either want to put a most don't say a moratorium most say we don't know enough when we know and so i i don't want to paint the picture i want i want to paint the picture which is there are some companies that say they they're pausing their use of this some are more definitive than others and and I think as the science comes out, as we start doing this, that will change. And some, as you say, are quite interested in it because they have these uh, major uh, challenges. I mean, there's also you know, anything, as I said, that has a, an on-off switch, cares about metals. The Pentagon should, you know, cares about metals. Here we are not just having an energy revolution, but a military resurgence with the war in the Ukraine. Not only does the United States shown that it needs to create an industrial capacity and, and restock Um, It's military, but at the same time, every NATO ally is saying the same thing. So we have this massive supply chain uh, issue uh, happening. And I think a few handful of places have said, you know, we don't know and we'll see. And then a handful are saying like, yeah, we really want to look into this. But I would not put corporate America on the list of the most bold people who want to be out front. Um, you know, on things. So, you know, I'm not depending on them and I don't think we should depend on them to be the, the drivers. I would depend on on the countries that do see economic impact on both of value to themselves, but also impact because they, you know, really want to uh, solve a problem. So Norway, the Cook Islands, you know, is another one. India is another one. Japan is another one. Yeah. Or the United States, as I told you. I think we're um, sort of in the middle at the moment. Not that we're against, we're just not leaning in. And so it ultimately happens because it's going to happen by those, and the International Seabed Authority will look like they're behind the times. And then finally, there's China. They're going to show up with a ship one day. They're going to start picking these things up. And what's someone going to do, blow them out of the sea? So we'll once again look like fools, where we've handed off some great important aspect of our own economic national security future to the Chinese who will just go do it themselves. And I think that ultimately will put the pressure. You know, I guess hadn't thought about this before. Maybe you should never say something you haven't thought about before a podcast. But in some ways, I think about it like Tesla. You know, what drove the auto sector to go to electric? And I've been doing this for 19 years. Yes, there's a regulatory side of this that drove them. But ultimately, it was the market. It was Tesla and its valuation that made them say, like, okay, we will not exist if we uh, don't do this. Or even on autonomy, it wasn't themselves doing it. It was really Google and uh, Waymo. And so these external forces, and I think the external forces here are these uh, countries that have in their own exclusive economic uh, waters, ability to do this and they're willing to go do it. And then some countries that really probably don't care about the international rules at the end, they'll play along until they don't play along anymore. And so I think those will be uh, driving uh, forces.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt that China is the OPEC of battery nettles for a reason. They invest ahead of the curve. And I think there's going to come a moment where developed countries, whether it's Europe or the United States might have to consider what role they can play. You know, will they be secondary recycler of these metals? Because despite the fact that there are initiatives like the IRA, Europe, of course, has several development funds that are trying to encourage a new supply of these important battery metals, but they move so slowly. And of course, largely what they're talking about are land-based ore bodies, and it's proving almost impossible to get those land based mines permitted. And so that's one of the challenges that the developers of those assets are faced with. And so, on the other hand, you've got conservative NGOs who are saying, well, we don't want you to mine nickel from the rainforest, but we also don't want you to pick up these rocks. So it's like, okay, so what then? And I think that's one of the dangers that I see is the very heavy hand from a minority group of NGOs who are having a lot of influence out there. And, you know, that has to fall at their feet. The cost of slowing down the development of ocean metals, because every year that we are not picking up rocks to turn them into battery metals is seen an increasing rate of deforestation to get access to nickel laterite ores. And we can draw a direct connection to saving rainforests that are rich in nickel laterite by shipping our nodules to some of those onshore processing plants that are currently processing nickel laterite ores. So, a direct connection. We can help slow down or stop the permitting of new nickel laterite mines. And it might be hard to shut down the operating ones now, but I hope by greater awareness, I hope by drawing A comparison between the environmental impacts of ocean metals from polymetallic nodules compared to land-based rainforest nickel, we can get customers starting to say, I don't want that. Now, of course, they're trying to regulate it as well. The battery passport initiative is a step in the right direction. The carbon equalization measures that Europe are talking about are a step in the right direction because that could add a very heavy tax to the cost of using rainforest nickel. So that would be good. But we can show a direct comparison. And this is, you know, we've we've tried hard to build bridges with the NGO community because on the surface, we should want the same thing. If we accept that we're going to need more metals for the transition, then what we should be focused on is where can we get them with the lightest planetary and human touch. But unfortunately, it doesn't always work that way. A lot of those NGOs aren't focused on science. They're focused on messaging. And of course... You know, in some cases, not all, but some cases, the land-based mining industries haven't done themselves any favors. You know, they've left behind horrible wastelands and haven't respected indigenous communities and so on. But this is an opportunity to get it right. And we invite them to come and sit with us anytime.
2: You know, Winston Churchill, when he was deciding to turn the British Navy from a coal-powered Navy to an oil-powered Navy, and of course, the, Britain had a lot of coal but no oil, and he was thinking about, OK, what are the countries I can, you know, sort of in my colonial world own? And he said, you know, security comes from diversity and diversity alone. That is the question of diversity of supply chain. And seabed nodules offer a tremendous diversity. The International Energy Agency came out last week with its, uh, you know, recent update on the minerals we're going to need. And yes, there was some positive news that by 2030, they see an ability to get you know, the materials we need. Now, 2030, well, close to 2030. But they did say that there's a greater concentration and it is less diversified than it's ever been. And that on greenhouse gases and water use, in order to do that, it's also greater. So we're moving in the wrong direction from a security perspective. So take Indonesia. Indonesia, where this nickel uh, is coming from, is now 50% as nickel production. And its environmental standards are going down. And the Chinese are basically own that industry, right? They're all throughout it. And so are we going to be dependent on this country, Indonesia, where China is sort of this pivot, it owns their companies that own so many, and has lax environmental standards? Or can we provide a deposit that we can have much more regulatory oversight and have this diversified supply chain? And it does speak to the economics here. And this is what's frustrating. China has this complete vertical integration, right? You're competing against a country that has unlimited uh, resources and can manipulate the supply chain at all points. And so, what we do see going on is China, in several cases now, flooding the markets like they've done in the past with materials, driving out private companies or public companies in the Western world that live quarter by quarter in the market and driving them out of business. And then showing up and saying, oh, we'll buy you, or can we buy you, and everything else. So they're manipulating the market. And so what we do need are these low-quartile types of deposits to get around the ability to do that. Otherwise, I fear if we do not put the right pieces into place, if we do not even have a willingness to pay more for better-produced metals, our companies will be driven out of business through the cycles of OPEC. This OPEC being the China OPEC throughout the supply chain as they manipulate it. And so, I think it's like really critically important to understand that and why this is uh, such a you know a tremendously important resource to understand and to begin to produce as soon as as possible.
0: I agree completely. I mean, you both bring up excellent points, and I've said for a while. I mean, we went from a U.S. standpoint being dependent on OPEC to eventually becoming energy independent, and then now with the drive to electrification, more EVs, we're finding ourselves tied a little bit more to China, which Jared says kind of the new OPEC of battery raw materials. And as we're trying to make that transition to more diversification of our supply chain, we're facing resistance. And we really need to move forward. Otherwise, we're just going to find ourselves in the same position the U.S. was in and called the 70s.
2: I mean, having a hear-no-evil, see-no-evil strategy, which is what some have adopted, just give us the vehicles, just give us the panels, just give us the wind turbine, just give us the aluminum, and not looking at how, even in that system, they're just laundering coal and emissions into our own products before we go and use them. That's the problem. Opaque supply chains are the friend of authoritarian regimes. Transparent supply chains are the friends of, what I'd say, a high standard and democracies. And what we see from China is when we do put transparency in, they go the other direction, whether that be on the stock market by taking their companies off once we put auditing standards, or now throwing out our own auditors or putting them in jail or investigating them in China. So what I think the Western world or, or uh, the allied countries or, or people who want to live by a certain standard don't quite appreciate is, The bad is happening. They're just not seeing it. And so I use rare earths and permanent magnets as an example. So near a permanent magnet facility, um, and we all hear about rare earths and permanent magnets in China, there is a pond that is radioactive. You know, you couldn't do that. But they can do that. They launder. You know, they have lower environmental standards. There's like 100% cancer rate in the area. You just can't do that here. So once again, does that help us? Is this the backs of these people that we want to build our future on? So the best, most important thing beyond seabed minerals, like just to get to the core of what we need to do is we need to have radical transparency in our supply chain from the mine or the seabed all the way to the final product. We need to embed our standards of human rights, child labor, and environmental standards into the products, admitting that we will pay a little bit more and then we have to have enforcement mechanisms in order to enforce those things, just so you can't, you know, say, oh, I standards, believe me. And, you know, we do have enforcement mechanisms. Let's just take for food or take for medicine, where we send out auditors to factories before they can ship here or to Europe, for that matter. We should be going to the mine. We should be going to the problem. And if we do that, and we do that with our allies, Canada, United States, Australia, European Union, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, where we have more GDP, more cars actually produced in outside China, we will create this supply chain that we'll be proud of for the future, as opposed to not being dependent. You know, after the COVID epidemic, they basically said there was a great resignation. And I think we are in a great reconfiguration of our global economy. But this is like after World War II, we reoriented. We are in that moment. It's just this major moment, Ukraine. Covid, And this is the transparent economy, you know, we ultimately need. And so it's not about ESG to make ourselves feel good. It's not about writing a report. I'm a national security hawk. And here I am telling you, if you want to compete, otherwise we will ship our industries over to China. We'll launder our environmental consequences and our human rights issues. And then we'll just use their product. And that's not the future I think we all want. And so I think it's bigger than just this one issue. But this one issue does symbolize how we have to grow up as a superpower and we don't live in a post-material world. Someone's got to produce something and we should do it and we should do it with our high standards. That's how we win. <laughs> I'm sorry to uh, you'll get so uh, animated. I just feel like, you know, the song I just quoted a psalm in a blog I write and it says, you know, those who have eyes and do not see, those who have ears and do not hear, those who have mouths and do not speak, etc. It's very famous. That's what it feels like. We see these things going on around us. We've been living it for the last decade. Our societies are upset that we've deindustrialized. And so it now is our moment. Let's just call it what it is and let's create a, the future. And I think deep sea nodules are really important to that. And we should. And, you know, The Economist just came out for it and said, like, it's time to get moving. Now, we don't need hundreds of things. We just need one ship. Let's start. Put a, one foot in front of the other. James Cameron, famous director, Sea Explorer always a concerned what he'd say, made the great movies about human exploitation. And yet he's come out for deep sea harvesting of polymetallic nodules uh, recently. And I think it's very important. As he says, most of the ocean floor is clay. And this is an area to do it. And he understands, you know, what we are doing to indigenous people. And he didn't say it's perfect. And his great line in his interview was, now we're going to grow a conscience. And so I think it is really a telling. And again, I think uh, we can start the regulatory side. Create these uh, regulatory pathways for companies like TMC and let them put a ship on there. Let them put two ships on there and let's try.
0: Otherwise, we're uh, fooling ourselves and we'll regret it 10, 20 years. So, Jared, how can we keep up with TMC and the progress you guys are making?
1: So, the metals company are uh, NASDAQ listed. So, you can uh, go to our website at metals.co and um, join our newsletter distribution or follow us on Twitter or, or LinkedIn or Instagram. And of course, you can also look up our, our ticker it's TMC on NASDAQ, and it's been an exciting ride to get to where we are. And I think it's going to be you know even more dynamic as we move forward and open up this new industry. And you know I guess one of the analogies, of course, is offshore oil and gas. Once upon a time, there was none. And then all of a sudden thirty plus percent of supply was coming from the offshore industry. And you know I think we can take an even higher market share when it comes to some of those metals, particularly nickel and cobalt and manganese. And so it's a time when rubber is hitting the road. So please come and join us on the journey.
0: Well, Robbie, Jared, I really appreciate you joining us on the show today. A great discussion, and I'm looking forward to seeing how deep-sea bed mining evolves. Thank you, David. Thank you very much. I'm David Miller, and this is The Interchange Recharged, out every second Friday at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. If you haven't already, check out our sister podcast, The Energy Gang, It's a bi-weekly look at the biggest and most important stories in energy. Hosted by Ed Crooks, with regular guests, Dr. Melissa Lott from Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy, and Amy Myers Jaffe of NYU's Energy, Climate Justice, and Sustainability Lab. Plus a roster of analysts, commentators, and industry leaders, it's everything you need to know in one place. So next Friday from 7 a.m. Eastern Time, join the Energy Gang conversation And we'll see you in a couple weeks.